right, we're going to be in Matthew 25. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 25. If you don't, these folks walking down the aisles will give you one. Matthew 25. All right, before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I want to uh, set it up. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and at this point, uh, we're, we're coming up to Easter, which is going to be April 1st of this year, and uh, we're actually going to, just by going through the book of Matthew, we're going to end up in some of these passages, um, like the Good Friday passage and, and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we're going to see this coincide with what we're studying, because currently, uh, the triumphal entry has already occurred in our study of the book of Matthew. Jesus is now in Jerusalem, as we've been studying. And um, the pressure's mounting and building as Christ is there with his disciples. He's already alienated uh, by attacking the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. Uh, everybody's in an uproar. They're all figuring out how to kill him. And um, so he's, he's taking this time to pour into his disciples in this kind of last moment. And he's sharing with them some very important things. And it all started with Jesus saying, as they were all marveling at the size of Herod's temple and the, and the magnificence of it, and he said, this is going to be torn down. And they said, when is this going to happen? And he starts to go through a series of parables. Again, just to refresh your memory, parable, parabolos, parallel lines. Jesus is taking a heavenly truth, putting alongside an earthly illustration so the disciples can comprehend it. And he's talking about in the end times. And he's doing uh, parable after parable after parable, trying to show them all these things. And as we studied last week, this idea, the, the common theme in each of his teachings is be prepared, be prepared, be prepared. And we took a look at Boy Scouts last week and Chief Tim Hagel and the whole bit. And so we have this idea of being prepared. Well, Jesus is going to now in this last portion of Matthew chapter 25, he's going to talk about two more parables, which in this passage of scripture, you're going to see uh, verses that are often used by politicians. And um, this is this is a politician goldmine uh, in Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew 25, we're going to see um, some concepts of capitalism. Some of you are going, yes. And then we're going to see some concepts of socialism. Some of you are going, yes. And that depends on your age. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to look at it and we're going to say, okay, what, what are we trying to say here, Lord? What are, you, what are you trying to portray to mankind? Because in this passage of scripture, he's going to clearly lay out capitalistic principles. And then he's going to come through with this other aspect and, and it's going to hit us. It's going to hit us kind of hard. And through the course of this, you're going to see some of these verses that, that uh, politicians love to use. Uh, but when we're finished with the study, we're going to have an understanding of really what Christ meant and, and what, what he wants to impart to us. Um, and it's an interesting passage. I, we had a lot of fun with it first service, and I pray we have the same this service. I mean, you look like a lot of fun people, and I think we're going to pull this off. So with that being said, we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. So if you'd stand with me. <laughs> We're going to pick up at verse 14. Jesus speaking in parables. This is called the parable of the talents. Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So here we go. Here comes a, a heavenly truth, and he's going to put it alongside an earthly illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one. To each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. 
Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he went and received five talents. So the one who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things and joy, uh, enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Now in the Greek, the word hard is cruel, uh, pushy, uh, kind of like a boss. And, um, I thought that'd be funnier. Uh, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So he's bitter. It's obvious he's bitter and he doesn't think highly of the Lord. And I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. So he's saying, look, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to go along with your assessment of me. We'll play that game and we'll go by your rules. So even if I am a lazy and wicked, you're, you are a lazy and wicked servant, even though I have reaped where I have not sown, etc. He says, and gathered where I haven't scattered seed. Verse 27, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. So some of the younger folks are going, man, that's awful. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. (laughs) For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What? All right, verse 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. So the nations gather before him and he will separate them one from another. And as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me and then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it under the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That is a very favorite politician quote. Let's move on. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. This sounds familiar. And you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. Then they will also answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you in as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Pray for me. This is going to be a tough one. 
Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you lead us into all truth. And Lord, we thank you that your word is clear and needs no explanation on my part. For your word is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. But Lord, we gather today because you want to impart to us your truth. And so, Lord, please, I pray that you would do just that and minister to us all. We commit this time to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, relax. Take a seat. Two very interesting parables. Uh, Jesus wants to impart some heavenly truth. He uses one that is clearly capitalistic. Uh, we're talking about a talent. For those of you who don't know what a talent is, it's, you know, and, and by the way, parables, you can torture them until they say whatever you want them to say. Uh, and these, these parables have been so tortured uh, throughout history. And we're going to just try to keep it as simple as possible. You can, you can try to equate the talent to anything. Let's just look at it in its general term. A talent was the largest measure of money at the time that Jesus was speaking. It weighed between 90 and 100 pounds of, of pure metal, whether that be silver, etc. It was the largest measure of monetary weight uh, available. And one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So one talent equaled 20 years wages. So one man's given five talents. That's 100 years worth of wages. That's a big chunk of money. Can I get an amen? amen. The other was given two talents. That's 40 years of, of, of salary. And the other was given one talent, 20 years of salary. That's a lot of money. And when it came time to settle the account, this, this, obviously the Lord is a very wealthy entity described in this parable, speaking of God himself. And as we studied last week, you know, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Yes? So he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. We're breathing his air, drinking his water, living on his dirt, eating his food. It's his. It's his. And we're his. And, and with this idea that he's our creator, we're his creature... And he has given us this. We look and, and he entrusts to us a measure of wealth that belongs to him. In this case, the Lord entrusts to this one servant five talents, which is a hundred years wages, an enormous amount of money based on his ability to handle that kind of money. And what does he do with it? He doubles it. He gets a return on his investment, an ROI, return on investment. All of you go to work every day and you, you, you want to put your money in an interest-bearing account. You want to return on your investment. You, you buy a piece of property. Michelle and I are in the process now of trying to buy a piece of property. And, and as we're doing this, a mortgage company is going to put up a portion. We're going to put up a portion. They're going to give us an interest rate. We're hoping that the house will increase in value faster than the interest rate. We want to pay off the principal so we can get out of that as quick as possible because when we're paying interest, it's going into somebody else's pocket instead of the future of my children. You understand all this. Can I get another amen? amen. And some of you, including myself, do you have a credit card? Raise your hand. Oh, don't be so shy. Look at all of you. America is really enamored with credit cards and we carry a balance and that balance is exceptionally high in some cases. Uh, we, we were helping one person out a usury fee, which was just obnoxious. They were doing a payday loan and we helped them out as a church uh, over 200% interest. Yeah. Unbelievably crazy. And so you have folks taking advantage and you, you see people needing to have some sort of, of, of capital so they can invest and do something. And in most cases, especially with credit cards, you're buying consumables so it doesn't have a return on your investment. You're just buying a meal today so your kids pay for it later. Okay. 
<laughs> First service was early and you guys are late. I guess it's something. Would you have turkey with tryptophan or something? Work with me here. So you're looking for a return on investment and the Lord acknowledges this and he, he commends the man for doubling it. Now, the other man was given two talents according to his ability and he doubled that. But the third one was given one talent. He went and he buried it. Now, I'll give you an example of that. Um, as you all know, we're preparing to uh, uh, move to the new location, and uh, there, there needs to be uh, work done on it. And as we were considering moving and we saw the property being purchased, the elders met and we were considering how do we fund this? What are we going to do for the build-out? It's going to require an extensive amount of money. And uh, we prayed about it, and I kind of had a piece about it. And somebody gave to us uh, a chunk of money to build out this property. The money was deposited in the account. We haven't broken ground. We haven't done anything. We're at the city right now. We're going through the planning aspects of it, all those things. And so this, this money was given in the form of a check. Now, if I took that check and I put it in a box and I went out in my backyard, dug a hole and put it in, that'd be crazy, right? The amount is quite a, a, a large amount. Um, and, and I, I, I certainly, you know, wouldn't want to let you know it's $900,000, so I won't, but the, the 900, <laughs> but imagine the interest on that. I don't even, ha- if I didn't even put it in a bank, the interest on that is substantial. And in the course of time while we're waiting, we're at least getting interest on that, which could go to something else in the building that, you know, we could, we could purchase. But if I were to bury it, and I remember one time, uh, when I was a director of a family life center, uh, they, they, the, the benefactor gave a million dollars for a building and a million dollars for the endowment to operate it in a very difficult part of Fresno to work with the inner city kids. And it was a donation. And her name was Zabel Garabian. And I remember as a director, we hadn't broken ground yet. She came and gave me a $2 million check. I was holding a $2 million check in my hand. This was in the early 90s. So that's like $4 million. And I, I'm walking around with this thing going, this is unbelievable. I, and I actually had a seminary class. I went to the seminary class. I saw John Perkins, who's an amazing man. If you don't know who he is, he's phenomenal. He's teaching class. I couldn't wait to show him. I said, John, look at this. And he went, wow, that's amazing. And I went to the seminary class and he was so excited about it. And we prayed over it. And then I was driving back and the bank closed and I didn't get the check in. And then we had a, a meeting with the board of directors and they said, you got the check. Said, yep, did you deposit? I go, no, you didn't deposit a $2 million. Do you realize the interest? And I, they just railed me. I said, well, I prayed over it. Uh, <laughs> But, but the idea is you want to make sure that if it's entrusted to you, at least you're getting interest on it. He didn't even do that. He just buried it in the backyard, which would just be ludicrous, and anyone in the room understands that. We're dealing with financial principles here, and it's very clearly capitalistic principles. He's going to transition into another parable where he's going to talk about the responsibility of wealth, but he clearly points out this idea of capitalism. So in this idea of capitalism, the one who has um, the, the five talents... He has five talents. He's got ability. He knows how to make money. And, and so we've gone through these principles. I need to do it again because it's important to the parable itself to explain this. For wealth to be generated, to, for wealth to be generated, two people have to benefit, right? So Ed, you're the farmer. I'm the baker, right? You grow the grain. And I come to you and we have a very good relationship. There's a lot of other farmers out there and I can probably get it for cheaper, but I don't get the same services and, and I don't trust them as much as I trust you. And there's a market, what it'll bear. And Ed and I talk about it and we discuss it and we come to an agreement and I buy his grain at a price that the market will bear. Obviously there's a profit because you've worked hard and you deserve that profit. He gets a profit. I buy the grain. 
With a profit that Ed makes, he goes out and buys more fields and hires more workers, and the community is blessed. I take the grain, I grind it, I turn it into bread, I bake the bread, I sell the bread at a price that the market will bear, and because it's a good quality product and there's competition with others, people come to my, my bakery and buy it, and with the wealth that I create, I buy more ovens and hire more workers. Wealth is created, two people benefit, builds community, right? That's called, for you young folks, don't get upset. It's called capitalism. It's called evil capital. I don't know. This is is what's ingrained in us, but it's called capitalism. For wealth to be created, two parties have to benefit. First 10 commandments are a relationship with God. Second 10 commandments are a relationship with each other. And then the entire Levitical law is a protection of private property because God expects us to own and to produce. And when we produce, a community flourishes. Do you understand this? And a talent is a measure of money. A talent is a measure of money. I walked into a Starbucks many months ago. As I was walking in early in the morning, there was a young man in his early 20s sitting there. I could see that he is homeless. He was fit, looked good, but, you know, just hadn't bathed and he had some growth on his face and, and his clothes were a little disheveled and I I walked by him and I knew what he was going to do. And as I walked by, he goes, Hey, can I have some money? And I turned and I looked at him and I said, I will give you money. If you can answer one question, he goes, what? I go, what is money? He goes, it's the stuff you need to, to buy stuff with. I go, no. He goes, bummer. And as I'm walking in, he goes, well, what is it? I go, since you asked me, I'm going to buy you coffee and give you the answer. He goes, oh, cool. So I brought him in to get him something to eat and a, and a cup of coffee. And he goes, what's money? I said, money is a representation of your contribution that you've made to society. You've made no contribution. Thus, you have no money. And I'm going to buy coffee and food for you with my contribution because I'm benevolent and kind. Do you understand this? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Now, you've chosen your lifestyle, but your lifestyle doesn't really produce anything, and it doesn't contribute to society, and the only way you can survive is on the benevolence of others that are producing, because I'm, I'm up early because i got to go to work. You don't have to go to work today, and hopefully I'll give you something. You're capable of working. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a good talk. Hopefully he learned. I didn't see him there the next week, so I think I was successful. <laughs> Now, you'll have your child come and say, you know, Dad, I really need to have these shoes. They're the latest sneakers. They're 160 bucks. I need them. All the kids have them. I need them. You go, okay, 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 160 bucks. How much money do you have? I got like 20 bucks, Dad. I go, I'll tell you, you don't need the shoes. I'll tell you what you need. You need $140. (laughs) Yes? That's what you need. You need $140. How do I get 140 bucks? You contribute to society. Uh, uh, you mean I can't play Xbox? No. You mean go out and get a job. So you go to the store and you go to buy the shoes and you put $20 on. The man says, where'd you get the 20 bucks? You, you just, you, well, I mowed Widow Johnson's yard. That's a wonderful contribution to society. You go mow her lawn f- five or six more times and you'll come back and that contribution will equal the output of what was needed to create these shoes and we'll have an exchange of, of that. And thank you for contributing and helping Widow Johnson. And society benefits. 
as wealth is created. Yes? But now we have this dichotomy. We have this trouble, this problem. Wealth is created. The first one doubles it. He's doing really well. The second one doubles it. He's doing really well. The other one buried it. And he's irritated with the guy who gave him the money to begin with. He has no return on investment and he thinks him to be a hard and cruel master. And that's the world that kind of thinks that way of God. How dare you? And we're in a fallen world and terrible things happen. And listen, God doesn't like it any more than you do. But to take away the trouble in the world that's caused by sin, he has to take away the source of that, and that's sinners. But he allows us to exist so that we can come to repentance and change the world for good. When our hearts are changed and transformed by relationship with the living God and understanding his precepts and applying those to our culture. But when we come to a place where we, we, just, we just don't see the work ethic, you see, this idea of capitalism was a Protestant idea that came out of the Reformation, and Calvin was, was the one that understood that the Levitical laws all dealt with private property and the freedom of an individual to create wealth to bless a community. Just read the Old Testament, you'll see what I speak of. But with that comes responsibility. Now, I will say this, the man whose ability to have five talents and double them, and the man whose ability to have two talents to double them, the Lord said it was his ability. And he came to that person, and he knew he had ability, and here's why. He front-loaded, he was trained, he understood how the markets worked, he went and got an education, he knew, he, he, he worked as a cashier, and then he worked as a cleaner of the floor, and then he worked as a, you know, the hamburger maker, and then he did the potatoes at In-N-Out, and he did, and he got a concept of how everything operates, so that as he rose in his ability, he now knew how to manage. We just immediately want to go to the top of the shelf and say, now I want my salary, and hook me up, and you have no idea how to run anything. And the greater the risk is the greater the return. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. Ed, I'm going to use you again. Is that okay? There's 24 hours in a day. You have two options with what's been given to you in life. There's 24 hours in a day. You can either go out and be an entrepreneur and try to develop and create and to take great risk with the capital that you incur because that will bring a greater reward. But it's going to require knowledge and education and you've got to invest in your life and you've got to understand these concepts. Or there's a, really, there's a simpler way. Just work hourly. 24 hours in a day, you just rise to a, a level where you're comfortable and let someone else take all the risk. Let someone else lay awake worrying about the spreadsheets and the income and the health care and all the things necessary for the employees. And you don't have to worry about people. You just got your job. You do your job and you go home. And you do it for eight hours a day and you go 40 hours a week and you go home. You don't have to worry about that and you get, a, you get an hourly wage. The problem is you only rise so much because of profitability of the company. And so you only rise so much. You can only make so much income if you're working hourly. But if you save your capital and then you take a risk and you start a business on your own with the things that you learn from the company you're working for, then you can start to hire people. How many people have a smartphone? Raise your hand. Everybody. Come on. I, I guess I should say who doesn't. Two, three, four. Uh, just, your parents are smart. They're looking like, <laughs> I'm like, you're going places. All right. Now of all the people that raised their hands, how many had a gun put to your head and Apple company forced you to buy that phone? Really? Yeah. I'll do the humor. 
all right? You bought that because, and this is fascinating, we drove into Los Angeles, I didn't know where we were going, and here, I'll tell you what, you just turn on the maps, turn right, turn left, you can do it in British accent, yes, you've turned, you're recalculating, need to turn in this direction, you can do it with any voice you want, I'm like, this is fascinating, and while I'm doing that, all of my information is going to Apple, and they're, they know where I'm shopping, they know where I'm driving, they know where I live, they're probably listening to me right now, I don't have my phone, <laughs> they're listening on your phone. And they're, they're, they're taking all this because information is power and they understand artificial intelligence and they're doing all these things. And they, have you ever done something where you're on the internet and you buy something on the internet and then the next thing you click on it and they have the ad for the thing you just bought and you're like, whoa, how did it do that? They're tracking you. Cookies, yeah. Not the little ones you can eat, but the ones that they just track you with. And what's fascinating is to put that phone together because I'm 53 years old, and I remember not, when not a single person on the face of the earth had a cell phone. I remember that. Oh, yeah, still excited about that. There's a few Luddites like us left. I remember when the phone, the landline, had a cord, and the phone would ring, and in the, in the house we would argue who had to answer it. Seriously, I'm, I ain't answering. You get your turn. There was one woman, her name was Aunt Sally, and she'd be on the, she, she, was, she was an alcoholic, and her husband had died in World War II, and she had a tragic life, and she would get drunk, and she'd call the house. My mom had a heart for her, and, and she would call, and she'd have her, and he'd say, and he wanted to be polite, and nobody wanted to answer, because we knew it was Aunt Sally, we knew what time she was going to call. One time, my brother's six, uh, no, nine years older than me, and I was, I don't know, 12, just when you're kind of girls are no, no longer ugly and he kind of all of a sudden realizes they're special and uh, he's a young guy and the phone rings and, and my brother answers it and he goes okay just a second and he goes Rob it's for you I think it's a girl I'm like run into the phone I'm like hello <laughs> he got me he got me good I don't know why I shared that story but it ties in it ties in with the idea that overnight, somebody was able to manufacture a device that everyone in the world purchased, and it changed the world. And for that to be manufactured, you had to have the raw materials, and people had to do cooperation to bring all the circuitry together and design this, and on and on and on, and here you hold it. And they've created something of value that everyone's purchased, and they've made money. And now we look at Apple, and their stock is going through the roof, and we think, those rich people owe us. Again, let's go back to it. Nobody had a gun pointed to your head that Apple forced you to buy that phone. They created a product you purchased and they now have. Now we can look at it and say, well, they're an evil corporation. They, they have responsibility and there's things that they need to do. Well, that's why the Lord goes into the secondary aspect of another parable. But before we jump into that, let me just share this with you. The Lord looks at the third person, the servant who was given one talent, and he buried it. He buried it. Didn't even get interest on it. When it came time to give an accounting for what had been entrusted to him, he didn't create anything. He didn't employ anybody. He didn't create wealth. He just sat in front of the Xbox while it was buried in the ground. He had 20 years of salary, capital, to be able to create. But you know what's hard about creating capital and, and, and being an entrepreneur? Sleepless nights. The concern of employees, working hard, making sure you don't fail, and you paralyze. He just put that in the ground and went to his hourly work. I don't want the hassle. 
Well, you don't get the return either. And the money entrusted to you, the life that you've been given, your mind, your heart, your hands, to create for people to benefit in this world and to do nothing is unacceptable to the Lord. You see, he created capitalism so that we build, ready for this? We build community. A fair exchange of honesty. I'll do business with Ed because he's honest. He tells the truth. And when you shake his hand, you don't even need a contract. When you develop a culture like that, the entire community is blessed. But when you have to get together and you have to have legalese and endless contracts because nobody can be trusted because nobody walks with the Lord and nobody's accountable, the first five commandments are our relationship with God and the second five we'll have no problem with if we're honoring God and we'll treat each other right. And there will be blessing. But what happens is we start to see that people covet. You have something I want, but I'm not willing to do what you did to get it. I'm just going to take it from you. And so we come up with all different kinds of ways to establish an economy. And I want to share with you briefly by using the illustration of two cows. Two cows, a a real quick education in economics. There they are. I want to talk to you about capitalism. All right. Capitalism in regards to two cows. You have two cows and you sell one and you buy a bull. Why? Why? You get more cows. I'm going to buy a bull. Then I'm going to produce cows and then I can sell the cows. That's capitalism. You're creating wealth. I want to show you socialism. This is the one everyone's so excited about because in capitalism, he who takes the greatest risk has the greatest reward. They accumulate wealth. And then the people who want to work hourly or don't want to work at all, look at the people who have money and say, you owe me. I remember one billionaire telling me one time, he said, Rob, People think that my money is the answer to their problem. (laughs) Let me tell you what money is. We all, we, we do know it's, it's a representation of our contribution to society, but if you give money without someone contributing, here's what money becomes. It becomes an accelerant. If you're a drug addict and you give someone money, they become a bigger drug addict. If you have problem with managing your money and you spend on things you don't need to impress people you don't know, it's an accelerant and you'll get a greater I remember one time giving somebody a car who was in desperate need. They went and sold the car and then went into a, used it as a down payment to get into another debt loan. Yeah. So we think people owe us something. So we come up with this, this really cool idea. And I really think it's a cool idea. I was, I remember I was in my twenties and I was in college and, and I remember they talked about socialism. I thought, what a cool idea. And I listened to the professor talk about it. I thought, this would work. It just, just an equal distribution and, and, and just have the government. Because you're young and you're watching your parents work and you're seeing these things. And, and you're the young kids, so you're up late at night and your parents are in bed. And you're watching the bloated bellies of the kids as they're appealing for funds. And you're seeing the disparaging aspect of society where you have wealth over here and then you have abject poverty over here and children are dying and they're starving and you're thinking we threw away more food than those folks get in an entire year and as a young person you're like this is so wrong my parents don't get it and I love what Churchill said he said if you're if you're not liberal when you're young you're heartless and if you're not a conservative when you're older you're brainless Because you look at it and as a young person, you're idealistic and you think, we can fix this. We can fix this. Take from people who have and give to people who don't have and then everyone has and there's enough to go around and we can work this out. 
And it really is cool. I like that idea. Until you realize that people are just so stinking selfish. And this concept of socialism. What's your name? Garrett. Garrett. What's your name? Randy. Garrett and Randy. Garrett, you're getting an A in the class. You've worked really hard. And, and, and you're just doing so well. Just stay with me, man. And Randy hasn't done squat. And he's getting an F. And so socialism is, I'm going to take two grades from you and bring you down to a C, and I'm going to bring you up two grades and give you a C. And now we're equal. And what happens? He doesn't want to do his homework next time, because what's the point? You're just going to give away my hard work to somebody who didn't work. So production falls. We're not creating wealth. We're not creating jobs. We think it works. Here's a picture of socialism. You have two cows, and the government takes one and gives it to someone else. Now we're equal. Isn't that cool? Some of the young people are going, yeah, that's really cool. You didn't have to do anything. You just get the cow. Well, I got news for you. I'm not going to make any more cows or, you know, sell cow to buy a bull because you're just going to take it from me. Here's a picture of socialism. You got any spare change? Sure. I had put, I'd put something similar on my Instagram and somebody in France said, socialism works in my country. I said, really? I said, that's until as Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. Now here's communism. You have two cows and the government takes both and gives you milk. Fascism is very similar. In in communism, the government takes both your cows and then gives you milk, gives you milk. In fascism, uh, you have two cows, the government takes both and then sells you the milk. Right? It sells you the milk. So this is the concept that we see in the parable of the talents, that God wants to create community. He wants us to invest our lives. He wants us to create wealth. He wants us to be creative and come up with ideas that make people's lives simpler. And so that we can really enjoy these things. And we don't need to be afraid of technology, but we need to put a moral foundation to it, correct? I mean, you're watching the accumulation of artificial intelligence and they're taking all of your data. What are they going to do with it? I sure hope that the people who are doing that have a moral foundation because they can make the world really awful. Do you remember in the advent of nuclear power and we thought this is the end of the world of mutual uh, destruction and, and, and we had superpowers, you know, uh, we'll blow you up and we'll, we'll blow you up. And so we're just going to have a detente and we're going to just, and, and we thought nuclear power, but nuclear power itself as a technology can light cities with very clean energy. It can also destroy cities. It depends on who's creating it, Right. So that is why a moral foundation is of absolute necessity into a culture, especially economically. And that's why Jesus jumps from this picture of the two talents and he makes it very clear that you're going to be embittered and you're going to feel entitled. And what happens when you're embittered and you're entitled is you're ungrateful. And you're demanding. And you don't like people telling you what to do, especially God, let alone a boss. Bible says as children, the first responsibility you have is to obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth because if you learn how to obey your earthly parents, you're not going to have a problem with a boss. And ultimately the way you respect others is the way you'll be respected. It creates a culture that's very sound in the eyes of the Lord. 
And so when he goes through this, he gets upset with the lazy servant. And he is lazy. He doesn't want to produce. He doesn't want to work. And thus he has nothing to show because he's made no contribution. He has no monetary value. And then Jesus jumps and he says, when the son of man comes in his glory, and he is coming back. And that's what we studied last week. Be prepared. When he comes into all his glory with the holy angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. We just studied that. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Nations. There's going to be fascist nations and communist nations and socialist nations and capitalist nations. And he's going to separate them. And not all capitalists are going to go to heaven. Some socialists will go there. But he's going to point something out, regardless of the nation you live in. How did you apply the principles individually for the world around you? And capitalism, interestingly enough, was designed by the Protestant work ethic and also designed from scripture. And all of the the laws pertaining to capitalism came out of the Levitical laws, if you follow this. And Jesus will say to these folks, as he separates the sheep from the goat, He will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or sick and, you know, heal you and and naked and clothe you and in prison and visit you? And he said, I tell you what you did unto the least of these you did unto me. And then he will say to those on the left hand, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister? And he said, surely I say to you in as much as you didn't do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wow. And these are governments and people individually and corporately. I'd say this to you. I've done this quite often. I'm going to do it again for those who are new. It's this idea economically of a first party, second party, third party purchase. Michael, you're going to buy shoes for yourself with your own money. This is a first party purchase. You're going to buy shoes for yourself with your own money. He's going to look for two things, quality and price. He wants the best quality, the best price, because it's his money. He made a contribution to society. He worked hard for it. He wants to make sure he gets the most for his money. So he wants the best quality at the best price. Yes. All right. Second party purchase. Michael's going to buy shoes for himself with my money. If anyone is a parent in this room, you understand this concept. Quality is everything to Michael. Price is irrelevant. Yes? Kids know how to spend money that they haven't made, don't they? Quality is everything. Price means nothing. Third party purchase. You buy something for somebody else with somebody else's money. By definition, every purchase the government makes is a third party purchase. You're taking money from taxpayers who you don't know and giving it to people in need who you don't know. And you think you're helping, but I'll tell you what, government doesn't have a heart. Now there's some government workers in here. You do have a heart, but you're also overwhelmed because there are people that you work with that don't have a care. And if you doubt me, how many people just love, love going to the DMV? (laughs) You just walk up to the counter. How are you doing today? Get away from me. I'm here to do, we'll get a number. And you look and there's a line out the door. 
And then you, you come to get your number and they're, I'm on break. <laughs> government, government has corruption and waste and fraud. Corruption and waste and fraud. Corruption and waste and fraud. Because it's not their money and they're not spending it for themselves. All they're concerned about, and I'm not saying government workers all, I'm saying the idea is, after a while, I just want my vacation. When is this nightmare going to end and I can retire? And it doesn't matter if I see 10 people or 20 people, there's still going to be a massive humanity and I'm just going to do what I can do and I'm just going to get my paycheck because it's not my money and I don't know those people. And if you get too engaged and you have too much of a heart, you get burned out. So you just do what you got to do to get out of there. And thus government fails. No matter what we learn as young people in this idea of this perfect society of socialism, it doesn't pan out in the end. And so the problem is, at the end of your life, you stand before the Lord and all you were doing was taking up time to get to retirement. And God says, what have you done with what I gave you as far as changing the world, applying the talents that I've entrusted to you? I got my hourly paycheck, but did you make a difference? I don't know. I sure had a good retirement. And God says, depart from me. You go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I signed up and this was a socialist thing and I was taking other people's money and I was giving it to other people. You go, wait, that's not... That's not you giving of your resources. That's you giving someone else's resources. But what did you do? I did my job. Well, that was a have to, not a get to. That was obligation, not adoration. This isn't a relationship with me. This is just a job you were doing. That doesn't equate. Depart from me. Separation. You see, the concept that God wants to impart to his people, the concept that God wants to impart to his people is that as Christians, we don't earn salvation by our good works. Good deeds don't make us a Christian anymore than being born in a garage makes us a car. But if you're a real Christian, then the flower of your faith will result in works. You do good works because you're saved, not to be saved. And you get a little anxious at this point, and this was the whole idea of the parable. You might ask, what if I'm not doing enough good to please God? Now, it's possible to ask the wrong questions in this life, and I just have news for you. If that's your question, it's the wrong question. The question should be, since good deeds please God, how can I do more of them? You understand that? The first question is born out of fear and apprehension. I, I, you're, you're a shrewd manager. You're, you're an evil Lord. You, you reap where you, you, you haven't sown. And it's born out of fear and apprehension. But the second question is born out of love and expectation. That's because God's kind and good deeds are those which are a reflection of our love of God and our love for God. And that's what Jesus is saying. What you did unto the least of these, you didn't even remember it because it was a part of who you are. It's a reflection of who you are. Um, do you remember the old series Kung Fu? Some of the younger folks won't. It was a story about this guy that he was raised in China and he comes to the United States in the era of Westerns, cowboys, etc. And this, he's speaking Chinese and he's a, he's a Buddhist monk who's tra- you know, trained in Kung Fu and nobody in America knows Kung Fu. And it's David Carradine, I think it was his name. 
And, 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 and he would have these flashbacks when he was a little child in China training with the master who was blind. He had these really cool uh, contact lenses that made his eyes look white. And he was just trippy. And, and, and the master would call him grasshopper. And, and he, he would, you know, and it was this guy that was a man of peace. And every episode he got, got into three or four fights. I'm not sure how that worked. But <laughs> in one flashback, he, he goes back to when he was a little boy in China and, and there he is in a line, and it's the master's birthday, and the master's blind, and, and there's a boy in front of him who's holding flowers, and grasshopper's holding flowers, and the boy comes up, and the master whacks the flowers out of the, out of the boy's hands, and then grasshopper just walks away with his flowers, like, I ain't giving them to him, because, and, and, and the master who's blind says, where are you going, grasshopper? He says, I'm, I'm leaving. He says, why? And he says, because my gift is unacceptable. And he said, what makes you think that? And he says, because I have the same gift as the boy in front of me, but you knocked the flowers out of his hand. He says, that boy came to gain favor with me and he came to try to impress me and he came to try to manipulate me but you've come in love I accept your gift and the idea is do you give gifts to get things or do you give because God wants you to give and that was the picture of what I saw in this one and one of the things too that is very difficult for us is we can come to a place where we we struggle when other people aren't helping. You look around and you're giving and others aren't. And you think, well, maybe I'll just keep it for myself. Why bother? And I'll share this with you. It's a cool story. It's kind of an idea of socialism in and of itself and the selfishness of man. A story about a man who was driving his car and it, he landed into a ditch in a desolate area. And luckily a local farmer came to help with his horse named Buddy. And he hitched Buddy up to the car and he yelled, Nelly, pull. And Buddy didn't move. Once more, the farmer yelled, pull, Nelly, pull. But Buddy didn't respond. The farmer repeated this action again with the same results. And then the farmer nonchalantly said, pull, Buddy, pull. And the horse, the horse finally dragged the car out of the ditch. The motorist was most appreciative, very curious. And he asked the farmer why he called his horse by the wrong name three times. And the farmer said, oh, Buddy is blind. And he thought he was the only one pulling. And if he did that, he wouldn't even try. <laughs> I'm almost finished. I want to read this to you. It was out of Forbes, and I really enjoyed it. I won't go through the entirety of it, and then I'm going to show you a brief video, and we'll be finished as we take communion together. But I want to prepare your heart with this mindset. And it's true that politicians demonstrate uncanny memories for scriptures that you find in Matthew 25 to trumpet their secular economic platforms. But keep in mind this. The left's emphatic opposition to intermixing church and state rarely precludes recitation of scripture for progressive causes. Liberals suggest it's unchristian to deny lavish benefits for illegal immigrants or equate socializing medicine with Moses' freeing Israel from Egyptian slavery. And President Obama, as you remember, he, he quoted the passage, the least of these to, I remember, to heap guilt upon me as a taxpayer. Socialists finesse scripture to justify redistributing wealth to the least of these, while capitalists overplay the parable of the talents. Both tout Christ's teachings as a crucial trump card. Other passages are mentioned. Socialists highlight descriptions in the book of Acts where they sold their possessions, laid them at the apostles' feet to give to those who were in need. But that was voluntary, privately orchestrated, local and temporary communalization to prescribe permanent, but communism is coerced under distant godless governments. And uh, Christianity and Marxism share little similarity. 
Likewise, capitalists espouse proverbs and various idioms found throughout the epistles. But Matthew 25 leads from both directions. The rapidity and carelessness of these misappropriations of end time parables startles anyone who actually reads Matthew 25 as we have done. Christ demanded sustenance for the least of these. 20 seconds after declaring for whoever has more will be given more and they will have an abundance and whoever does not have even they will be taken from them. The least of these in Matthew 25, you just think of this idea and yet the Lord holds us accountable and responsible. Christ's mission wasn't to elevate our physical status, but to redeem mankind. You didn't get a raise so that you can forget humanity. We're Christians. We're not supposed to be stingy. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved you so much. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We put into your bosom for the same measure that you use. It will be measured back to you. And here's Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give? And then Matthew says, freely you've received, so freely give. And it's amazing how we can declare the passage of scripture with capitalism and be so stingy when we have received so much and we have every justification not to participate in giving. I'm not even talking about the church. I'm talking about our lives. Churchill used to say, you make, you make a living out of, of what you make and you make a life out of what you give. And God is saying, when, when did you do this? When he's not interested in what you've accumulated and you come to him with your pile of dirt and say, look what I've done. He's saying, how have you invested it? How have you changed lives? How have you run businesses? How have you engaged in the civic arena? How have you participated in all these mountains of cultural influence? What have you done to implement my truths in lives of people to make them free and blessed and happy? Or have you just gone and said, the government will do it. You know why we have a problem is because we don't have people participating. This is our role. This is our calling. And we'll have someone else do it. Back when we had the Great Depression, all of the social welfare came from the churches. And today we expect the government to do it. You have no problem paying 40% in taxes, but doggone it, I'm not going to give a penny to any charity. Really? And you're going to sit and go, capitalism. And expect the culture to flourish? That's why God puts these two together. He doesn't let us rest easy and settle in it. And then we become upset. I'll tell you though, politicians expand their power by sowing discontent with worldly estates relative to others, what the Bible calls covetousness. Demagogues encourage jealousy to justify looting taxpayers. They violate the eighth and 10th commandments through programs enabling recipients to avoid the fourth commandments requirements of work. To fund the largesse, Washington employees counterproductive policies that arguably violate scripture, progressive taxation with this, which distorts incentives, exploding public debt, debasing of the currency, all these things. God's truth is eternal. Divine justice doesn't flutter with public opinion. And you know why your kids, when they're young, look at you when you're older and they want socialism? Because they don't see biblical capitalism in their parents. How can the world be so corrupt if my parents are so blessed? 
We just go to church on a Sunday, but beyond that, we are not visiting the poor. We're not feeding the hungry. We're not participating. And you put a call out for volunteer work and it doesn't happen. We're Christians. We change the culture. Yes, capitalism, great. Stand upon your precepts of capitalism. I am a capitalist. You may be a socialist. We may both be Christians, but I have news for you. You don't know the scriptures. But as capitalists in the room, many of you don't know them either. Because there's a secondary parable that went along with the first. And God challenges us as people. Nowhere in scripture are states tasked with leveling wealth. Egalitarianism rarely lifts the least of these. Instead, it deprives their right to rise beyond their circumstances. Even the poorest in America generally have more than anyone, save perhaps a dictator's inner circle where governments enforce equality. The Bible provides a guidebook for life, including politics and economics. It ought to inform our very essence. Yet when Joshua asked the pre-incarnate Christ before Jericho, are you for us or for our enemies? The Lord said, neither. Whose side are you on? Capitalism began in Christendom and surged after the post-Reformation. And although capitalism appears compatible with Christ's teachings, the Bible never specifically endorses. Neither are markets anywhere condemned, only the sinful actions of those that are abusing others. Markets offer freedom, which amplifies character without room for good or ill. Capitalism wonderfully fulfills the supply half of economics. It says nothing about the applying of the output. Did you hear that? Capitalism wonderfully fulfills the supply half of economics. It says nothing about applying the output. That's the secondary parable. That's our heart. Free enterprise bestows bounty extraordinarily well, but Christian compassion remains a vital complement in filling in the gaps. Charity is necessary, helping those incapable of fending for themselves. Benevolence is best done privately and through evangelistic outreach. Charity ought to not to enable those who could, but won't provide their own needs, nor can voting others' wealth into your coffers be supported scripturally. Capitalism is the best platform man has yet devised. However, the Bible consistently condemns its corruption by sinful men, and scripture allows other systems. Communalism, if private and voluntary, can certainly reflect Christianity well, but will inevitably collide with human nature. No economy can thrive without acknowledging our character. Socialism misses that men are inherently selfish. Capitalism is imperfect because man is flawed. But it may offer the only avenue where otherwise debilitating qualities orient towards harmonious community. If we do it right, the community will flourish. Free markets reward our positive attributes by spurring production without enabling our propensity to only take. In capitalism, wealth generates by mutually beneficial trade. Profit comes by boosting value. Competition for scarce resources channels self-interest into cooperation. Markets guide our unique talents for society's benefits. There's nothing exploitative about profits derived by honest, free exchange serving others. But what of greed? Capitalism forces the greedy to produce, thereby growing the overall pie. To gain, they must provide what others willingly purchase. It's ironic that while those relentlessly pursuing materialism search for contentment and error, the rest richly benefit by the impoverishing lifestyle they pursue. Those most responsible for increasing wealth accumulate more. They should, but in so doing, lift their community's living standards. Even America's poor live well by any material measure. In socialism, greed shifts from productivity into consumption. Without poverty, or excuse me, without property rights or opportunities for profit, men quickly descend into mutually destructive envy. Our basic instincts betray us and output plummets. And I'm almost finished. When we see someone slacking and still taking, we produce less. 
When we see others hoarding, we snatch more. As Adam Smith said of slavery, a person who can acquire no property can have no other interest but to eat as much and to labor as little as possible. Without freedom to elevate one's family, production falls, forcing government to become oppressive. Socialism renders workers slaves to the state. Biblical teaching does not sanction involuntary socialism by secular governments. Now, granted, I'm a capitalist and you might be a socialist, right? And if you are a socialist, I don't question your salvation, but I do question your understanding of God's word. And if you're a capitalist, capitalist with no heart, I question your position with the Lord. And I say this because for God so loved the world he gave. And do you look at God and are you upset with him? Or do you realize he didn't spare anything to deliver you? And freely you've received when you come to this table and freely you'll give. It's a heart of gratitude. I want to show you one quick video. We'll take communion and then we'll leave here hopefully changed. In the contemporary world, it's taken as a given that capitalism with its free market and profit motive is based on selfishness and produces selfishness, while socialism is based on selflessness and produces selflessness. Well, the opposite is true. Whatever its intentions, socialism produces far more selfish individuals and a far more selfish society than a free market economy does. And once this widespread selfishness catches on, it is almost impossible to undo it. Here's an illustration. In 2010, the United States President, Barack Obama, addressed a large audience of college students. At one point in his speech, he announced that young people will now be able to remain on their parents' health insurance plan until age 26. I don't ever recall hearing a louder, more thunderous, or more sustained applause than I did then. Had the president announced that a cure for cancer had been discovered, it is highly doubtful that the applause would have been as loud or as long. But what were they so happy about? To be told that you can now remain dependent on your parents until age 26 should strike a young person as demeaning, not liberating. Throughout American history, and for that matter, all of Western history, the great goal of young people was to become a mature adult, beginning with being independent of mom and dad. Socialism and the welfare state destroy this aspiration. In various European countries, and now increasingly in the U.S., it is becoming common for young people to live with their parents well into their 30s and not infrequently beyond. And why not? In the welfare state, taking care of yourself is no longer a virtue. Why? Because the government will take care of you. Therefore, socialism enables, and as a result produces, people whose preoccupations become more and more self-centered. How many benefits will I receive from the government? Will the government pay for my education? Will the government pay for my health care? What is the youngest age at which I can retire? How much paid vacation time can I get? How many days can I call in sick and still get paid? How many weeks of paid paternity or maternity leave am I entitled to? The list gets longer with every election of a liberal or progressive or left-wing party. And then each entitlement becomes a right. But we're not done. There are even more destructive effects of socialism. 
Entitlements create citizens who lack a character trait that every human should have. Gratitude. You cannot be happy if you are not grateful, and you cannot be a good person if you're not grateful. That's why we constantly tell our children, say thank you. But socialism undoes that. After all, why would a person be grateful for receiving an entitlement? Who's going to be grateful for getting what they're entitled to? So instead of thank you, the citizen of the welfare state is taught to say, what more am I entitled to? Yet the left insists that it's capitalism and the free market, not socialism, that produces selfish people. But the truth is that capitalism and the free market produce much less selfish people. Teaching people to work hard and take care of themselves and others, and that they should earn what they receive, produces less selfish, not more selfish people. Capitalism teaches people to work more. Socialism teaches people to demand more. Which attitude do you think will make a better society? I'm Dennis Prager. We're going to prepare to take communion and keep this in mind. There are two parables. One is an economic system and the other is the heart of a human being. And the contrast between the two lives is one who's ungrateful and the other who's grateful. Grateful for what God has done and thus their life is revolved around a heart of others. They're not doing it to appease a capricious God. They're doing it because of what that loving God has done for them. It becomes a part of their life and they don't even know that they've done it because everything about their life reflects that. A lemon tree doesn't realize it's putting out lemons. It's just what a lemon tree does. And you'll know them by their fruit, the scripture says. Okay, I get you get capitalism and you can make it just as evil as socialism if you don't have what God intends, which is a gratitude for what he's given as you produce to bless mankind. And when you receive from that blessing, he calls us to give as we have received. Freely you've received, so freely give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God was completely just and completely merciful. You see, the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. Death awaits us. God wanted to have mercy on us, but he's also just, and he couldn't take away the penalty. So what he did is he brought his son, who was sinless, to leave the glory of heaven's throne, leave everything to come and give us everything. He was tempted in all ways, yet was without sin. He walked the Via de la Rosa. He took every punishment, every pain, every whip, every stripe, every beating. He was spit upon and he was mocked and ridiculed. And when he died, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he came to set the captives free. And if you were the only one on the earth, he would have died just for you. And when he died, he had you on his mind. And he gave you his last breath and he poured out and he paid the penalty. And you received that by faith. Salvation is by, by, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace through faith. You receive it. He gives it to you. He paid the justice of it, and he extended the mercy of it, and he said, receive it. But here's the catch. When you realize how much you've been given, you respond not out of obligation, but adoration. God, you gave me everything. Now use my life to be a gift to everyone. You're not on this earth 
to make your life comfortable. You're on this earth to serve. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Be a servant of all. You want to get your political side and make it an us and them? Go love them. This is the communion table. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so he commands us out of adoration with joy to do the same. The two parables go together. Don't bury it. Go out and live it. And when you take communion, realize he didn't spare anything for you. He gave it all. And freely you're coming to receive and leave to freely give.